This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. Well, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? It is great to be in church this morning. And uh, today we're going to start a new series of conversations called Questions. And I'm real excited about this because society today is asking some very tough questions. And the further that you dig into some of the facts, you begin to find out that what they're asking, there's actually some legitimate answers to these questions. But what I've found is I've raised children and I look around that from the earliest beginning of our existence, every single one of us, we begin to ask questions. There's a quest within us with this desire to try to find out truth that will fill the voids in our life, that help us to understand a little bit more about what life is all about. And I went online and I tried to just find some of those questions that even kids ask at the youngest age. And just to kind of give you an idea, if you're a parent here today, you probably have your own list, but there's a little boy, his name was Franklin, and Four-year-old little boy, he asked this question, very inquisitive question. He says, what does Santa smell like? I mean, where'd that come from? I mean, if, if you really think about it after driving around on your sleigh for 24 hours or however long it is, he probably doesn't smell very well, Franklin. But anyways, it's an interesting question. There's another little boy, his, his name was Morgan, six-year-old little boy. He asked the question, are there dinosaurs in heaven? I mean, where did that come from? Who would have thought that this little boy in his mind would come up with such a perplexing question? There's another little girl. Her name was Beth Ann, a five-year-old. She asked this question. Was everything in black and white in the olden days? <laughs> that's an interesting question. You know, all you can see are these black and white pictures. Maybe that's the way it was. Bethany, a three-year-old, asked this question. Very, very interesting question. How do I know that I'm a real person and that I'm not fake like my doll. Wow, three years old. Why would, why would someone ask such a deep question? And then you leave it up to the boys to ask the most obvious but embarrassing one. Eric asked his mom, how'd that baby get in your stomach, right? And more importantly, how does it come out? <laughs> my point is, is this. From the very beginning of our existence, we start asking questions. The older that we become, the more complex our questions become. Because we begin to understand the voids and the complexities of life and all the different things around us. So we, we start asking these questions that oftentimes are hard to find the answers. And really that's what this series is going to be about. We're going to talk about tough questions and hopefully give some honest answers to them. And the reason why we ask questions is this, is because it's our longing for truth. The only reason a question arises is simply because you don't have the answer for it. So you ask the question. Some of those questions, again, could be simple questions, and uh, something as simple as, 
what shoes should I wear today? Now, to some people here, I won't look around, but that may be a very difficult question, maybe the challenge of the year. What kind of shoes should I wear? Or where should we go to lunch? Or what movie should we see? And so we're asking a lot of questions all the time because we're looking for facts or for truths that give us answers. But what this series is really about are the colossal ones, the big ones. Is God real? Is the Bible really true? Why does God, if he's a good God, allow evil and suffering? If he's a just God, why would he allow injustice? Let's talk about money a little bit and talk about why is the church always talking about money? What's, what's the big deal about money anyways? Or why is the church so uptight about sex? Let's just bring up the three-letter word and let's talk about it. Let's talk about exactly what God thinks about sex. Or am I good enough to go to heaven and what's going to happen to me when I die? We went and we did some research to find that there's nine questions that millions of people are asking. And our goal with this series is to try to help kind of a couple different areas. Number one, our goal for this conversation is to help those who uh, are asking for truth to bring them truth. If they're searching for it, we would like to be able to say, hey, here are some things that you should consider. Jesus said it this way. He said, you will know the truth, or another translation says, you can know the truth, and the truth would set you free, that there's an ability to find facts that bring resolve to your questions. Hopefully, if you're here this morning watching online at one of our campuses, maybe you got a flyer, maybe you saw something on Google or whatever we've done, my prayer for you is that you would at least begin to consider the facts that we have and say, you know, maybe there is some truth that's worth pursuing here. But the second part of what we'd really like to do is to talk to many of you here that are here today that are asked these questions all the time. How do I actually answer the question? What kind of facts can I use in a 21st century context that allows me to take some tangible, logical facts to help someone that's asking some of the most important questions of their life. And so this morning, we're gonna jump right into our journey, and we're gonna start with a question that I believe that has been asked by every person that has ever been born. Throughout the centuries, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of culture, upbringing, whatever it might be, I think you can come back that sometimes, somewhere, somehow in their life, they ask the question, is God real? Even atheists today spend their whole life trying to disprove something that does not exist in their own mind. They're still asking the question or trying to disprove the fact that God doesn't exist. And I believe why this question is such a perplexing question is because our entire existence hangs on the answer to this one question. Our worldview, our purpose of life of why are we even here? What is this all about? Our values, our morals, our actions. There's a framework to life that is dependent upon our view to this question. But probably what makes it the most perplexing question is this. 
it determines your fate. It determines your fate. The reality is, is that every person here this morning that hears my voice is basing their entire eternal destiny on a set of beliefs. Either God's real and you know who he is, or he's not. He either came and died for you and you can have a relationship with him or you can't. And again, there's thousands of religions, thousands of so-called Christian cults out there to choose from. You had better believe that you have the truth because you're basing your entire eternal destiny upon your conviction or your opinion. So this question deserves some attention. It deserves us stopping and not just having an opinion or being so busy in life that we don't give it much attention only to find out at the end of our existence that we were wrong. Your entire eternal destiny, your fate, comes back to this question. Unfortunately, in just the few minutes that we have together, we, we really can't completely answer this for you. It's, it's hopefully an opportunity for those of you that might be questioning this question to help you at least begin a journey. To begin to just say, well, maybe there's enough fact here that I should consider pursuing this a little bit further. And that's really what we're trying to do with this series is provoke some conversations that allow you to consider. During this series, too, one of the things I think will be so important for anyone that hears my voice right now is that we're putting resources and materials and articles and blog posts will be on our website, citybiblechurch.org backslash questions. You can click on there and you'll find every week the question of what we're talking about on a video as well as all different kinds of resources. So if you want more information or you want to study this out a little bit more, it'll be available for you. I think it's going to be an exciting series that will help us with these areas. But this morning, let's just jump in and talk about is God real? And what I would like to do, again, just the, the most simplistic way that I could come up with to try to just talk about this issue, is to look at three different areas this morning. And I have three tables behind me. They kind of demonstrate the three areas that I want to talk about. I want to talk about intangible proof, external proof, and internal proof. And I want to look at these three and just bring up some illustrations that might help you. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about the intangible table, or table number one that would be to your left, to my right. And we've got to recognize that there are some ways to prove something beyond the existence of the material realm. A lot of people today try to prove or disprove God based upon science. Now, science will help us as we'll see, but if we depend solely upon what we can touch, see, hear, smell, or feel, oftentimes it creates some kind of skepticism in us because we're trying to use a natural means to try to prove a supernatural being. And so when we look at science today, science is simply defined as the study or the natural realm, if you will, on facts gathered through experience and observations. The bottom line is it's hard to use that method to prove a God that you can't weigh, that you can't touch, that you can't see, that you can't smell. 
He's not like your mountain bike. He's not like your iPad. He's not like your bag of salt and pepper chips. He's, he's not that kind of God. And so when we look at this area, there's another approach that we have to look at. It's called intangible proof. And it's simply, it introduces this other means of God's existence by using intangible ev- evidence to, pr- to prove an intangible being, if you will. And there's a guy in the Bible, his, his name was Paul. And Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible. And he's, he's talking to a group of people like you and me. They're immersed in a pantheistic culture. They believe in all different kinds of gods. They're very academic, intellectual. Morals are eroding in their society. There's a lot of things that are going on. And so he addresses not the church through this scripture, but actually the Gentile world or the people out there. And he makes a couple profound statements. So we're going to look at three of those this morning. The first thing that he says in Romans 1.20, he says this, profound statement. He said, through everything that God has made, he says, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. It sounds like an oxymoron. They can see the invisible. Paul, you're a little confusing here. But what Paul is alluding to is that there are things that you can see even though you can't see them. That there's a lot of things that we would base our life upon or or our trust in, things that you can't see, but you know that they exist simply because there is evidence to prove that they exist. So if you look at this table intangible, you can notice right here that there's absolutely billions of things that are sitting on this table right now. Now, you can't see them, but I want to talk to you today about what you really see, even though to the naked eye, you don't see them. And so one of the first things I want to bring up, and sorry that I have to walk around the table here, but I want to show you a box of chocolates. How many here love chocolate? Come on, be honest this morning. Okay, everybody here. It's... This is simply just a bunch of sugar that's 100% health-free. However, when I take this box of chocolates and I say to my wife, baby, I love you so much, and I want to thank you for the 34 years of the best marriage in my life. I love you so much. I just want to give you something. Please share half of them with me, Right? As soon as I say that, there's something that happens beyond what you see that exists. Love. Every person that's ever been born would agree that there's some form of relational or emotional connection with another being. And so we see tangible things in our life that prove that love exists. Although you can't see love, you see the evidence of love. You can't grab it, you can't hold it, you can't touch it, but you can do that to express it. But no one here would argue the fact that love doesn't exist. Another example would be something like this, and this here represents a lamp. Now we get the idea of electricity, something that we all believe in, but you can't see, but you see the effect of electricity. 
The benefit of electricity, air conditioning, heating, appliances, lights in our building. Imagine right now what would happen if there were no lights in this place. All of a sudden, we begin to see evidence of the absence of something that we believe in. But if all of a sudden we say, hey, light's on, all of a sudden we begin to see the benefit. You can't see electricity, but you're convinced that it exists because there's evidence to prove that it does. Are you with me? Let's think of one other one, and we'll talk about a fan. And this fan, this is the best that I could do to represent hurricanes or tornadoes or wind or storms. And as soon as I turn this on, You begin to feel it. You feel the emotion of it. You take a look at a hurricane. Now, many would say, well, I can see the eye of the hurricane. It's something you can see. No, you see the water and the clouds that are generated as a result of the wind, but the wind behind the hurricane, you can't see. You see the effects of it. You see the devastation of it, all those things. There's not a person alive today that would say wind doesn't exist. So if we live a life today, when we look at our intangible table, and we would say that there's just a few, although there's millions, that would use this kind of proof text to, to, to determine that something exists, why wouldn't that apply to God? When you think of answered prayer, you see the effects of it, you may not see him, but you see him at work. You think of the billions of lives that have been transformed. For me and all of my past and being a drug addict and everything that I was going on, one touch from something radically transformed my life, and I'm thankful for that. And you think about the billions of people today that would be quote-unquote followers of Christ or God would say, something happened to me beyond me. Hopefully what you see in my life is the evidence of God working through me, although you can't see God around me or in me. So the first table would be one way that we should consider, think about, okay, here's maybe, that wind feels good, by the way. See my hair blowing in the wind? Feels good. It should at least be one way to prove that maybe there is a God. Maybe God is real. But let's take it one step further, and let's, let's go to the next table, the external proof. And let's just talk a little bit about the external proof. I want to go back to Paul and his statement as he's talking to the ancient Roman world. And at the end of this statement, he says, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities. He goes and he adds some thoughts. He says, his eternal power and divine nature. And then he says this, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. So it's not just the external things that he created, but actually his divine nature in them. His eternal power behind them. They didn't just happen. 
And so we start by looking at table number two, and there's a, a couple things here that I want to look at. The first would be a kaleidoscope. Now, if you go back a few hundred years, they actually used to think that there were 1,014 stars in the sky. They got out their kaleidoscope and they begin to look out there and they're going, yeah, let's see, 999, 1,014. There were even some in that day that thought there were 1,100 and there was a debate. They actually fought because they thought the guy that thought there were 1,100 thought that he was being a little bit too evangelistic or too idealistic in his numbers. But what's happened as technology has progressed, we've gone from a kaleidoscope all the way through to telescopes. Today, there's now over 200 billion galaxies that at least we've been able to identify. The one galaxy that we live in is called the Milky Way galaxy that happens to be one of the smallest of the 200 billion. It's a speck in the midst of the 200 billion. Our galaxy alone has 400 billion stars in the one galaxy. And if you were to travel at the speed of light across our own galaxy at 186 million miles per second, in just one year, you would travel 96 billion miles in one year. One light year, 96 billion. For you to get across our galaxy, it would take you 100,000 years at the speed of light. And that's one speck in the midst of 200 billion galaxies. As we begin to progress in our knowledge, you look at physics and astronomy and cosmology, everybody's pointing to this one idea. Not only is it vast and complex, but they're looking at how does this all work together? What's the, as Paul said, the divine nature that's actually causing everything to work together in complete harmony? Why isn't there chaos? Why isn't there oblivion taking place? And most people today are now pointing to this idea of this thing called intelligent design theory. They're basically saying this, is there something that came before the universe? They don't know what it is, but they say that something came from something. And we live in a culture today or in a world today as we look at it, our entire existence is framed in this idea that like produces like. Your child comes from you. Didn't come from itself. A dog will come from its parents, a plant from a seed, a car from a factory, a house from a builder. Everything that you have, everything that we see came from something else. Not only did it come from something else, but it also depends on something else for its existence. We depend on water and food and air to survive, a plant on water and, and, and uh, soil or sun in order to, to survive. So if there's something that started before us and something that we depend on, that would also apply to the universe. And that's what everybody's saying. I, I read this from, from one of the uh, cosmologists. They said this, the actual odds of the universe actually existing 
forever or happening by chance and held together by chance would be the same odds of disassembling a 747 jumbo jet, putting all the pieces out into the field, and then asking a tornado to come in a perfect path that picks up all the pieces, reassembles the plane, and puts it back together ready to fly. But we've got people that, how many would believe in that? I mean, that sounds logical, right? Come on. Now, how many, even if they thought that was logical, would say, okay, well, I'm going to hop in that plane? Well, then, then why would we then begin to question the fact that maybe there is something beyond? It's not just the universe itself. What Paul is saying is that the eternal power, the divine nature, that there's something that's actually holding it together. And when I open my Bible, the very first page, first verse, first book, first chapter, it says, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. But you take it one step further and you, you go down to the, to the next thing here and this, this earth represents obviously the planet in which we live. To us this seems massive. It's 8,000 miles in diameter, 25,000 miles in circumference and it's this huge planet that has these large volumes of water and mass continents and hundreds of thousands of streams and rivers and ecological growth in every single niche of every part of our globe. But when you really think about it, it's a speck in the midst of our galaxy, which is a speck in the midst of the universe. And you just look at what's happening here. It's, it's the only planet that we know of that circles the sun where actual life exists. And what's amazing about it, the earth, it travels around the sun every year. Its orbit is a 584 million mile orbit. And it finishes every year within one thousandth of a second. How many think that they could travel 584 million miles of land within a thousandth of a second? Come on. What makes that happen? Here's what's interesting. If it went any faster, it would spin off orbit, we would freeze to death. If it moved even a hair slower, we would be sucked into the heat of the sun and would be fried instantly. Start going, wow, maybe there's something about the earth. And when you begin to just look at, again, just all of the animal life, 8.74 million species that are on the planet, everyone uniquely made with their own uh, divine nature, if you will. We could talk about every single animal and how they're created. I think about the giraffe, and again, it's, it's amazing engineering is what allows it to exist. Do you know that if a giraffe, if it didn't have the, the, just this engineering, that when it tilted its head to drink, the massive blood pressure would cause its head to blow off of its neck. But when you begin to think about the anti-pooling devices and the nerves that begin to restrict blood and all the things, that every time that it happens, millions of nerves begin to tell it that it's moving down. It restricts the blood that allows it to drink or the heart that allows it to pump. And you just look at that one little animal big animal. You go, wow, that, that alone is amazing. You think of a bombardier beetle, one inch long. I mean, scientists think they're so smart because they, they came up with this idea of binary 
chemical reaction, but thousands of years ago, there was this little bug about one inch long. It's got three chambers in its body, and one has hydroquinines, and the other has hydroperoxide, and they actually, whenever they feel threatened, they'll mix them together in this other chamber with oxygen that puts together this hot, toxic chemical that spews upon its attacker. These two chemicals by themselves, they they don't have any kind of harm to them. They're harmless chemicals, but when you bring them together, they're very, very dangerous, called a binary chemical reaction. God thought about that thousands of years ago in an insect. We think we just figured it out the last hundred years. There's 8.74 million more that we could talk about. The plants, you go down the list, there's a lot of things to talk about. Is anybody feeling a little stretched just for a second? Okay, well, maybe, maybe there's, there's something there. Then we go to Skippy Skeleton. Uh-oh. We've all seen one of these in our science class. What's challenging about our body is I actually believe that you go from universe to world down to your existence. The most incredible thing that was ever created is you. You look at all the different chemical compounds, forget just how everything work, works, but the chemical part of your body, you actually have in you 30 trillion cells in your body. Every cell itself is a chemical factory that performs 10,000 fu- functions each. Not only do they perform those functions, but there's actually 10 million or so bits of data in every one of those cells. And you've got 30 trillion cells in you. And it's amazing when you think about it because you've got this nervous system that's in you that just this three pound brain and spinal cord and you can get a thought and immediately it it engages your 200 plus bones and 639 muscles. If I just want to say whistle, clap your hands. Snap, whatever you want to do, immediately it triggers very quickly all of these thoughts, actions, emotions to do stuff very quickly. Second nature, if you will. It's because of the billions of neurons and passageways in the way that we're created. Most people in the past would say, well, that's just a part of our physical makeup. But the reality is when you start studying the human body, you find it to be completely different. So we have a table that says intangible proof, just three of the millions we could talk about. We have our external proof with Skippy, the globe, and our kaleidoscope. But let me just go to the internal. Let's talk about the internal proof, if you will. I want you to forget about all the other things, all of the existence and creation and the endless qualities of this intelligent design. And let's just talk about you. Let's say that it was only you and what goes on inside of you that would be the only way that you could prove God. Paul says this. They'll know the truth about God because he made it obvious to them. As he unfolds the rest of this chapter, as he writes, he's talking about conscience and morality, that there's something beyond the physical realm in every single one of us that cannot be debated. It simply exists. 
And so I choose to use this little Russian doll, and some of you would be familiar with the way that these work, very cute doll, but when you begin to open up the inside, there's other pieces on the inside. The first thing that you'll notice that's inside of every person that has ever been bored is your, your conscience. We all have one. Some would debate that, but the reality is that you want to debate it exists that it's there. Well, that's not right. That's not wrong. You don't have one. The fact that you debate it's telling me that you, that you have one because you're trying to reason with something that you said doesn't exist. You have a conscience. You, you understand right or wrong. Now, that may be different to every person, but Paul's saying, listen, there's something in your inner man, this thing called conscience that allows you to discern between right and wrong. Studies have shown that that stretches far beyond the physical. There's a guy, his name was Dr. Wilder Penfield. He's the renowned father of modern neurology. And he, he actually, for decades, believed that the 16, uh, or excuse me, the tens of millions of billions of firing of your brain per second was just a part of your physical being. He worked with epilepsy patients and for, through thousands of tests, he would hook them up and he would actually try to trigger the mind to do something different than the brain. And after decades of study and research, he made this statement. To expect the highest brain mechanism or any set of reflexes, however complicated, to carry out what the mind does and thus perform the functions of the mind is quite absurd. He says no machine technology can control the mind and conscience part of a human, a medical fact that can no longer be debated. Inside of your conscience is also another little gal, if you will, and it's morality. And so you get into, oh, there's one that says bad thoughts. We'll forget that one. But we'll just stick with morality. Now, again, we have this debate that morality is taught even if it's taught, the fact that we try to train or to teach something about right or wrong, regardless of what level that is, says that something still exists. Your morality helps you to discern why you should or why you shouldn't do things. I was talking with a guy on the campus of University of Missouri. He was adamant about the fact that there is no such thing as morals. So I asked him a very pointed question. I said, hey, buddy, let me, let me just ask you a question. I said, do you have a, a, a little sister? He says, yeah, why would you ask that question? I said, no, just, just stick with me for a second. I said, do you have a, a picture of your little sister? She says, yeah, it's in my wall, pulls it out, eight-year-old girl. I said, you know what? I like your sister. In fact, I want to marry your sister. All of the sudden, he began to get red spots all over his neck and face, almost wanting to fight me. And I said, just hold on a second. I don't like your sister. I don't want to marry your sister. But what I wanted to do is to prove to you that there is some moral compass somewhere in every person, whatever it might be. Why is it that we feel bad when someone goes on to Reynolds High School with a gun and kills 
Emilio Hoffman of 14. Why does society itself groan? What is that? Why do we feel bad when an officer is shot down? Or why, why do we feel bad when we're reminded about the Holocaust and Hitler and six million people dying? What is that in us that goes, oh, all of society. It's not a train thing. It's just like we all groan and feel bad when those things happen. But why is it then that we feel good when a bunch of people get together and they buy clothes for Emilio Hoffman's funeral for his family and takes care of that? We all cheer and go, wow, that just feels so good. It feels so right. It's because intrinsic to our nature is this thing called morality. And so when we look at these three tables, intangible, external, Eternal. My hopes are that it at least puts you into a position with just the eight of the billions of examples that God exists. And if God is real, then each one of us must do a few things. The first thing that I think that we need to do, if God's real, is we get to make the choice. Either we're going to believe or reject the truth. Either we're going to say that's true, or it's not. My hopes are that you would at least take a look at some of these facts. If you're here, you're online, you're at one of our campuses, and you're saying, I just really don't know if he's there, start the journey with us. Go online, get the resources that we're offering. At least take the step of saying, you know what, there's enough evidence presented that maybe I should consider the fact that he really exists. It will take a step of faith because you have to choose to say, okay, I think I'm going to believe that he exists, but you got to move your belief to an action. Catch this this morning, please. Everything that we have talked about today, God wanted to make it easy to know that he was real. Simply because he wanted you to choose him, not reject him. He wanted you to come to this place or this reality that he's real. And not only is God real here, follow me here please. He wants to be real here. The reason why you have the quest or the longing to answer the question simply helps me understand that God wanted you to feel that and ask that so that he might fill it. The bottom line is this. God wants to be real in your life. He wanted to make it so easy to see. He wants to be real in your marriage. He wants to be real in your circumstances and your trials and your sicknesses and disease and disappointments and setbacks. And I mean, it's not just about saying, okay, yeah, I believe he's real. No, it's so that he can be real here. And that you can step back like where we start and say, my whole fate is dependent upon this one question. Not only is he real, but he's real for me 
He's real in me. He'll never leave or forsake me because that's the kind of God that he is. I just want us to pause again. The whole point of this series is to help every single one of us realize how big God really is and that he's really real for you. Would you do me a favor? Just close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment this morning. I want to pray for you. This, this is a unique series in that. For everybody here that would say, hey, I already believe God's real. It's your opportunity to be able to fulfill your purpose by letting the world know that he's real. You know, as you leave here today, we're going to give you some touch cards. I know we do that all the time, so much so it might become mundane for you. But would you do me a favor? There are millions of people around us that are asking questions. Let's together give them honest answers. Next week, I'm going to be talking about, is the Bible really true. It's going to be an interesting journey, just like this with some illustrative stuff. If you have anybody that thinks that that's different, bring them out. It'll be awesome. Jesus, right now, I just pray for everybody in this room. Lord, I pray that they would see, Lord, the season and time in which we're living. God, you would empower them. You would send them. Lord, you would give them divine appointments. You would put people in their path. Lord, Father, that would just uh, be a person that they could share with about this great series. God, you bless them. You, re- you just fill them with your goodness. God, reveal to them that you're truly real. Lord, we thank you. Come on, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, put your hands together for Jesus this morning.